Full disclosure, I'm Robin Farzad. You should be globally diversified because that globally diversified portfolio, what academics call the market portfolio, is the portfolio that all stock market investors collectively own. That's the market that reflects our global collective judgment of what stocks are worth. And anytime you deviate from that investment mix, you are making a market bet. You're declaring, I'm smarter than everybody else. And I, for one, after 35 years as an investor, I'm not willing to say that anymore. I might have been when I was in my 20s and a little arrogant, but I'm not going to say it anymore. Here with Jonathan Clements, author of How to Think About Money. The veteran personal finance columnist on the verge of his own retirement reflects on risk, humility, advice to his younger self, and lots more. Stay with us. This episode is made possible by the support of Salomon and Ludwin, a boutique wealth management firm dedicated to helping families make smart financial decisions. You worked hard and sacrificed to create and build wealth. They treat advice given to you with the respect your journey deserves. For over 30 years, Salomon and Ludwin has earned a reputation of trust and confidence, recognized by Barron's as a Hall of Fame advisor. More at SalomonLudwin.com. Full Disclosure Podcast to NPR One, Spotify, and Apple at linkfulldradio.com. Please subscribe, rate us, and recommend the show to others. And follow on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram at Full D Radio. Joining me is Jonathan Clements, founder and editor of Humble Dollar. You'll recognize Jonathan's byline. He was nearly, what, 20 years at the Wall Street Journal. He was the newspaper's personal finance columnist between October of 94 and April of 2008. He wrote more than 1,000 columns for the journal in the Wall Street Journal Sunday. He then spent the tour of Six years at Citigroup, where he was director of financial education for City Personal Wealth Management. He returned to the journal for another 15-month stint as a columnist. The books are From Here to Financial Happiness and How to Think About Money. Did I fit that all in, sir? You did. That was a great summary, Robin. Thank you. Normally, a good editor would say, you know, edit yourself. But uh, there's a lot to get to with you. Jonathan, I read your stuff and I think about this period of prolonged risk on where all risk assets have just been going bonkers, from stocks to real estate where you can't get a bid in on a starter house, uh, crypto, which you kind of have to get your mind around, and these incipient talk of inflation. And I think about 40 years ago as a little boy, and my dad took me to uh, Savings of America in North Miami and got me a passbook savings account at the time of inflation. And he was so proud that we were going to clip, what, 11 or 12%. And I, you know, we were immigrants. He had no idea about the stock market and the power of compounding with a five or six year old. And now, similarly, my son, I'm a father, is starting to ask me about how the markets work. And it's a completely different world and universe within 40 years. That's absolutely true, Robin. And in many ways, 40 years is the right time period to think about what's going on. If you go back to the early 1980s, we had double digit interest rates. And much of what we've seen right. in the financial markets over the past four decades has been a consequence of that fall in interest rates. And in many ways, we feel like we're at the nadir here. Uh, we've got interest rates so low that it's made it very affordable for people to buy homes. Mortgage rates are rock bottom. It's made bonds very unattractive. It's made cash investments very unattractive. And the result of that 
is people are looking for returns. And the number one place they're looking for returns is the stock market. And that's why amid all the uncertainty that we have in the world today, amid this pandemic, amid concerns about economic growth, we have the stock market at all-time highs. You know, and another interlude that I'm thinking of, and you were a columnist also then, was in 2000, where uh, stocks at the beginning of the year hit an all-time high, led by the NASDAQ. You had technology as a portion of uh, the stock market as, I think, its largest fraction ever. And we've kind of blown that out of the water. The NASDAQ, uh, you know, back then was at 5,000. We're approaching 15,000 now. There are five companies, I believe, including Apple, Facebook, Microsoft, Google, or Amazon, with each a valuation of a trillion dollars. Um, this is really uncharted territory. It is, in many ways, uncharted territory. But this is the collective judgment of investors. And we can look at the market and say, this is insane. It's crazy that people are bidding up stock prices so high. And yet, you should always keep in mind that the prices we see today in the stock market, in the bond market, even in the cryptocurrency markets, are the result of millions of individual decisions by people who are pursuing their own best interest. People believe that stock prices and bond prices and even cryptocurrency prices are rationally priced today. They are deciding that it is worth buying and selling at these prices. And so you shouldn't be too quick to say, this is insane. This is the collective judgment of investors that what we're, is what we're seeing in the financial markets right now. I'm sure you get asked this a lot, and I've thrown it back at many investors. You know, when we were talking about the new normal coming out of 2008 and 2009, I asked Mohamed El Arian, formerly of PIMCO, what is normal? It's an existential question for me. Over the past 20 years, you've had the Federal Reserve take interest rates to emergency levels several times. If you think about the period following 9-11, the period following all the bank failures and Lehman Brothers and uh, the Great Recession, you think about the pandemic, however short-lived the financial crisis aspect of it was in 2020. Are they keeping their thumb on something that is, I guess, preventing all of us from experiencing what normalcy should be? I would question whether things are ever normal. You think back over recent decades, the beginning of the 1970s, we had the 73-74 crash and the OPEC crisis. The beginning of the 1980s, we had uh, double-digit inflation and Volcker trying to tamp down inflation. You go to... uh, you know, the beginning of the 1990s, we had the invasion of Iraq. We had a recession that year. You go to 2000, we had the dot-com boom and then bust. You go to 2008, 2009, we had the Great Recession. You go to 2020, we had the pandemic. Every 10 years or so, we have extraordinary events. And every time, investors are shocked, shocked that we've strayed from what they consider to be normal. But the fact is, this sort of tumultuousness it's a fact of investing life. It's a fact of the real world, and people sure. should not be so shocked by it. Well, here's the interesting thing that has happened uh, over the past, let's say, 10 years. Um, and you're a big proponent of this shift to low-cost investing and in index funds, where the spirit is really, be the market. Don't try to beat the market. Most actively managed mutual funds never meet their market benchmark if it's the S&P 500. Why pay the fat costs of you know a point every year, which accumulates to thousands and thousands of dollars over an investing career? You've seen uh, and and you've commented on this extensively this this sea change, this shift to index funds and ETFs and low cost investing, and moreover, 
Something that would have surprised, I think, the Jonathan Clements of 20 years ago, the commission died. No one's really competing for equity commissions anymore. It's like they're giving away the trades, the big banks, and looking to make money on you elsewhere. So yes, commissions have come down to zero. Yes, we've seen this big move towards index funds and exchange-traded index funds. But don't imagine that the poor folks on Wall Street are suffering too much. When you have those no commission trades, they're making that money. They're making it up on the bid-ask spread, that small difference between the price at which you can currently buy a stock and the lower price at which you can sell. They're making it up on those sweep accounts where they pay you very low interest on the cash that you don't currently have invested. And even within the mutual fund universe, when you have companies like Schwab or Fidelity offering index funds at little or no cost, their expectation is that they're going to make money in other ways, that they're going to be able to get you to buy some actively managed funds, to trade some individual stocks so they get part of that bid-ask spread so that you pay for some of their actually managed funds. They're going to make that money one way or another. Don't worry. None of these big firms are suffering too much. You know, it's interesting. I'd like to go back and channel uh, kindergarten me again. And that conversation, I always bring it up to dad with the passbook savings account. And, you know, here, put it away for your college. It's $500 and a 12% yield and a toaster back at Savings of America. But Back then, I would have imagined it would have been esoteric or difficult for a father you know, in 1981 to have put $200 to use in the stock market. Uh, commissions were prohibitive. It's not like everybody had a brokerage account. It wasn't as easy with online trading and telephone trading as it is today. But today, by contrast, if my son says, Dad, here, we have $200 saved up, I could very easily go and invest it with him and not have the friction and the transaction costs anywhere near what I had in 1981. Can you explain that? It's one of those things. It's the best of times. It's the worst of times. When you look at the valuations in the market, the high price earnings ratios on stocks, the miserably low yields on bonds, people say this is a terrible time to invest. And and in that sense, it is. But in many ways, Wall Street is friendlier to small investors than it ever was. When I started investing in the mid-1980s, to get into a decent mutual fund, you had to pony up a $3,000 minimum investment. Today, there are mm. funds that you can get into for no money down. It's very easy to get started in the markets. Similarly, you mentioned trading costs. You know, It used to be that you would trade a stock, even if you went through a discount broker, you were paying $75 or $100. Now right. you can do it for zero. Sure. And the, why is that? Well, partly it's technology. It's just so much cheaper to transact these trades than it used to be. Partly it's volume. The amount of trading that goes on today, the amount of money that's in mutual funds is many fold higher than it was back in the early 1980s. The other thing that investors should think about is the fact that the tax environment is so much friendlier now than it was. You think about all these special ways to save. We have 529 plans now where you can get tax-free growth. We have Roth IRAs and Roth 401ks where you can get tax-free growth. Those didn't exist 40 years ago. Meanwhile, the capital gains rate has come down sharply. For investors, this is a great time to be an investor when it comes to costs, when it comes to low minimums, when it comes to the current tax structure. The only downside, as I said at the outset, is the low bond yields and the high stock market valuations. Full disclosure, I'm Robin Farzad. You're listening to Jonathan Clemens, founder and editor of Humble Dollar, veteran, former personal finance columnist at the Wall Street Journal, 
And he was also uh, director of financial education for Citigroup's personal wealth management unit. I have to ask you, because you almost you know, got to it talking about yields and savings accounts, will you shed a tear or two for savers? Because where are they in this long process of the Fed keeping interest rates down at such low levels? It's not like you can walk into a bank right now with all the money in the world and, and, and the bank really wants your money and wants to compete for your money. You're absolutely right, Robin. To the extent that we are trying to reflate the economy currently, and we did it back in 2008 and 2009, we do it on the backs of savers. We cut short-term interest rates. That's what the Federal Reserve is doing in order to spur the economy, to encourage businesses to take out loans, to encourage investors to move into riskier assets. On the other hand, you should not look back to the early 1980s when you could walk into your local bank and get a double-digit CD or get double digits on a passbook savings account and say that was the glorious era for savers because the fact is it was a money illusion. Yes, you know, you might have got double digits on your CD, but you had double digits inflation. So yeah, you were making this money and then you were immediately losing it to inflation factor in taxes and your money simply wasn't growing. Today, when you go to a high yield online savings account, you get 0.5%. Yeah, that's below (laughs) the 2% inflation rate, but you're not going to pay very much in taxes on that 0.5%. Yes, you are losing ground to inflation taxes, but probably no worse than somebody was 40 years ago. You know, I'm quoting from Jason Zweig's uh, column in the Wall Street Journal. He has a piece uh, when a 59% annual return just isn't enough. They're talking about this period of fear of missing out and investors in this investor survey expect to earn 17.3% this year after inflation because markets have done so well. But he does note that US stocks have returned 7.1% annually after inflation since 1926. 5.3% over the same period after both inflation and taxes, according to Morningstar. That might sound measly in the grand scheme of things, but when you consider the power of compounding, which you've written about quite a bit, that can turn a dollar into several hundred dollars. Absolutely. And if we manage to beat inflation in stocks by seven percentage points a year over the next 20 or 30 years, I would be thrilled. To be honest, I doubt it'll happen. I think over the long term, Investors need to assume that they will earn somewhat less than that, maybe four percentage points a year over inflation. And the reason I say that is one, dividend yields are substantially lower than they were at that beginning of that 90-year period that you just cited, Robin. And two, stock market valuations are much higher to the extent that price-earnings ratios, this basic valuation of stocks, either stays the same or subsides in the years ahead investors are not going to get the sort of return that they've had since the mid-1920s. It's simply not going to happen. So when you sit there with your little financial calculator and say, how much might I have at retirement if I continue to save X number of dollars every month, don't assume you're going to make 7 percentage points a year more than inflation. I would put in more like 3 or 4 percentage points a year more than inflation. And that way, if I'm wrong, you're going to have a much more comfortable retirement. And if I'm right, well, at least you will be able to retire. Well, here's the thing, Jonathan. There are uh, investors in emerging markets and foreign developed markets. You talk about Germany, Canada, Japan, who are saying, hey, hey, look at me. Look at me over here. Take your eye off uh, Facebook and the NASDAQ and Amazon for a minute. We've had quite a bit of a lost decade. And there's a school of thought that says investing is not just investing in the S&P 500 and United States equities. 
there's a whole brave world of Russia, you know, Brazil, India, China, the Philippines, Colombia, uh, European nations that were formerly in the Eastern Bloc. Are you of the school of thought that I hear this occasionally? I remember Jack Bogle of Vanguard, the late Jack Bogle, used to think it was redundant. If you're investing in, say, the Standard & Poor's 500 index, which has the 500, you know, this representative U.S. benchmark of multinationals that have at least half of that revenue, I believe, was derived abroad. Do you have to go international? I don't know whether you have to go international, Robin, but I certainly think that you should. Uh, with my own portfolio, I have half my stock market money in U.S. stocks and half of it invested abroad, including a substantial allocation to emerging markets. And why is that? Well, maybe it's because I've been kicking around for a few decades. And if you've been kicking around for a few decades, you will remember that the 2000s were a lost decade for U.S. stocks. In the 2000s, in that period from 2000 to 2009, developed foreign markets outpaced U.S. stocks. Emerging markets did substantially better than U.S. stocks. What we've seen over the past 10 years is a reversal of that. What will the next 10 years hold? I don't know, but I think there's a decent chance that we will see developed foreign markets and emerging markets do better than U.S. stocks over the next 10 years, in part because the valuations in those markets are substantially lower. And in the case of emerging markets, those economies are growing quite a bit faster. My nightmare scenario is the scenario that's been suffered by Japanese investors since the end of 1989. Imagine you were a Japanese investor who suffered from what experts in behavioral finance call home bias. In other right. words, you were the one who believed that you should have all your money in your home market. Where would you be You know, three decades later? You'd be sitting with a portfolio that was worth less in nominal terms, let alone inflation-adjusted terms, let alone in tax-adjusted terms. You'd be sitting on a portfolio that was worth less than it was at the end of 1989. I'm not forecasting that that will happen to the U.S. market. But if you are an investor with any knowledge of market history, you have to at least be aware that that is a possibility. And one way you hedge against that risk is to diversify internationally. Maybe I'll be wrong. Maybe holding those international stocks will drag down your returns. But as investors, the one thing that we can do is to manage risk. We can't forecast returns. Nobody knows how the stock market is going to perform next week, next month, next year, or over the next decade. But we can all manage risk. And one way you can manage risk is diversify as broadly as possible. And to my mind, that means including in your stock portfolio, not only US stocks, large and small, growth and value, but also having a substantial allocation to both developed and emerging markets. Now, I'm going to do my best to not get into the weeds, to not wade into the weeds, Jonathan, but I want uh, listeners to understand, a general public radio audience, that if you're buying the U.S. market right now, the S&P 500, it's not 500 equally weighted components. Au contraire. Right now, it's so top-heavy with Amazon, Facebook, Google, Apple, that they represent, you know, this is a capitalization-weighted index. When you buy, say, one unit of the S&P 500, around 20% of that, 25% of that is technology. Should you be trying to mitigate risk by moving away from that model? I mean, should you be, for example, is this a time to consider selling that and keeping more in cash or putting it in, in a specific fund that covers the value portions of the market? Really, the contrarian trade, like a lot of people 
wish they had done in 2000, the last time things got this hot? So what I would say to you, Robin, with all due respect, is that if you ask a stupid question, you're going to get a stupid answer. If you start trying to ask yourself, where is the stock market headed? You're more likely than not are going to end up with some foolish financial forecast that's going to cause you to have a unbalanced portfolio that you're going to later regret. Yes, somebody's going to figure this out and we'll put them on the cover of Business Week and we will celebrate them for being investment geniuses. But in all likelihood, if you start fiddling around with your portfolio and making market bets one way or another, you're going to end up getting it wrong and you're going to end up regretting it. So what I would say is when you look at stock prices, you shouldn't say to yourself, this is the collective judgment of millions of extremely savvy investors. Millions of extremely savvy investors say that a fifth of the U.S. stock market should be represented by these five huge technology companies. And I, for one, am not so overconfident that I'm going to say, Mm. oh, yeah, I know better than these other people. But what I would say is there's a lot more to the stock market than the S&P 500. So if you're invested in only the S&P 500, you should think about having exposure to small and mid-cap U.S. stocks. And you should think about having exposure to developed foreign markets and emerging markets. You should be globally diversified because that globally diversified portfolio, what academics call the market portfolio, is the portfolio that all stock market investors collectively own. That's the market that reflects our global collective judgment of what stocks are worth. And anytime you deviate from that investment mix, you are making a market bet. You're declaring, I'm smarter than everybody else. And I, for one, after 35 years as an investor, I'm not willing to say that anymore. I might have been when I was in my 20s and a little arrogant, but I'm not going to say it anymore. Full disclosure, I'm Robin Farzad. You're listening to Jonathan Clemens, founder and editor of Humble Dollar. I do think about uh, institutional memory, Jonathan, and inflation and bond wrecks. And there are people out there, mom and pop investors might not know that they could actually lose money in bonds. Or what? what is inflation? When was the last time true inflation was visited on risk assets? You have to go back to the 1970s. I mean, that was a period of high inflation in the US and elsewhere around the world. And it's both a good news and a bad news story. So the bad news might as well lead with the, with the grim headline. In the 1970s, the S&P 500 lagged behind inflation by a couple of percentage points a year. It was not a good time to be an investor in the S&P 500. But here's a couple of pieces of good news. During the 1970s, smaller companies outperformed Mm. inflation and foreign markets outperformed inflation. If you were a globally diversified investor in the 1970s, despite that high inflation, you would have done okay. You would have had a portfolio return that was probably similar to or slightly better than the inflation rate in the US during that decade. The other piece of good news, and this is a reason that to continue owning stocks, even if we do see a resurgence of inflation, is that during the 1970s, corporations in the US were able to increase their profits faster than the inflation rate. So even as the cost of labor, even as the cost of raw materials went up, companies were able to take those higher prices and pass them along to consumers and thereby continue to increase their earnings per share faster than the inflation rate. 
And that rapid earnings growth through the 1970s is what set us up for spectacular performance in the 1980s and 1990s. So yeah, if we get a resurgence of inflation, and I don't think there's any guarantee it's going to happen, but if it does happen, stocks may take a short-term hit, but over the long haul, based on history, they should do just fine. How do you explain for listeners that there isn't really true you know, double underscore inflation in this environment when they feel it at the grocery store, when they feel it at the gas pump? I know that the Labor Department and the Federal Reserve, they like to differentiate between core and non-core inflation, but people certainly feel that many things in their lives, housing stock, cars, they have become more expensive over the past 20 months. And they have indeed. And the big question in my mind, and I think in everybody's mind is, is this a permanent increase? Are we moving back to a higher base rate of inflation? Or is this all transitory inflation a result of the you know, excess demand created by the end of the pandemic? And is it caused by the supply chain disruptions that we've seen? And I, for one, Robin, I'm not smart enough to answer that question for you. But I would say this, even as you think about all the things that have gone up in price, also think about all the things that are much better value than they were 20 or years ago. I mean, the, if you go and you buy an electronic device, the amount of power and functionality you get for every $100 you spend is exponentially greater than it was 20 years ago. You know, a half decent sluggish laptop 20 years ago cost 2000 bucks. You can now go out and buy a laptop for 250 bucks, and it's probably better than the laptop you could have bought 20 years ago for $2,000. Or you think about cars. Yeah, there's this current shortage of cars, and there's, you know, we've seen an increase in prices of used cars. But think about how much better cars are today for every $1,000 you spend than they were 20 years ago. I mean, the amount of technology that's built into the, those cars. The safety features, it's just astonishing. So yeah, there is inflation in some parts of the economy, but there's also been deflation in some parts of the economy. We just don't tend to notice it as much. Full disclosure, stay with us. This episode podcast to NPR One, Spotify, and Apple Podcasts at linkfulldradio.com. Please rate us and subscribe and follow along as well on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram at Full D Radio. If you're just joining us, we're talking to Jonathan Clements, founder and editor of Humble Dollar. He was veteran personal finance columnist at the Wall Street Journal, also author of books From Here to Financial Happiness and How to Think About Money. Uh, sir, do tell me how to think about crypto because I yeah, I used to cover Wall Street and investing for a living. I worked in asset management out of college. I cannot, for the life of me, understand the appeal of Bitcoin and Ethereum and cryptocurrencies. I mean, what was broken? What's the pain exactly that they're addressing? It's a great question, Robin, and I can't claim to have any particular insight on this question. I'm as befuddled by it all as the next person. What I struggle with is the fact that while there is a limited amount of Dogecoin or Ethereum or Bitcoin, you know, there is a cap on how much of any particular currency they're going to create. The fact is there is a un potentially unlimited number of cryptocurrencies. And if there's a potentially unlimited amount of anything, then the price should you know, tend towards zero. So why somebody would pay north of $30,000 for a Bitcoin right now, I struggle with it. But to go back to my remarks earlier, plenty of 
smart, rational people are willing to pay these prices. So I feel that in some sense, I'm missing the story. But what I would say to listeners is this, just because something is talked about, just because something has until late been a hot performer, doesn't mean you need it in your portfolio. A plain vanilla portfolio consisting of stock and bond index funds is going to get the job done. You don't need to own cryptocurrencies, just as you don't need to own Tesla and you don't need to own you know, an ETF from ARK Investments or any of these other investments that get so much buzz around them. A plain vanilla portfolio of stocks and bonds is just fine. This other stuff, in my mind, is... It's part of Wall Street entertainment and, you know, it's fine. Pull up a chair, grab some popcorn, enjoy the market action, but it doesn't mean you have to participate. You know, I talk about popcorn. You walked right into my next query is this whole AMC Game Stock Robin Hood phenomenon with the Wall Street Reddit group, the investors and traders. I've been asked to comment on it quite a bit. I've always thought, you know, activism on Wall Street was the province of hedge funds that they're paid a lot by investors to go in and take a stake in a company, a publicly traded company, and agitate management for a buyback or board seats or something that it's it's costly. It's not what index funds, it's not what mutual funds have done. And yet during this pandemic, we've had such free time that battalions, armies of individual mom and pop investors that use Robinhood, which you'll have to explain to me as well, create a whole new reality for companies on the brink of bankruptcy, such as AMC, the movie theater chain that wasn't able to show many movies during the pandemic, such as GameStop, the brick and mortar video game retailer, you know, hurts out of bankruptcy. I'm sure you get asked about this a lot at cocktail parties now that we're doing that again. What the heck happened? I mean, we talk about for years, they were lamenting the death of the individual investor, the mom and pop trader, the retail investor in 2000. But this is a whole different beast. It is a whole different beast, and yet it's not. So if you were going to design a portfolio that would appeal to our behavioral biases, you know what you would do was combine a savings account with a lottery ticket. Because when we manage our money, we really have two goals. One, you know, we want to make sure that we don't end up poor, but we also want a shot at being rich. So for most people with most of their money, they're trying to make sure they don't end up poor. They put it in a savings account. You know, if they're investing in the 401k plan, they'll often you know, favor the stable value fund. They'll favor a target date retirement fund that's a pretty steady performer. But then they also want to have that shot at being rich. Uh, mm. And in pre-pandemic times, you'd wander down to uh, the local store and you'd buy a lottery ticket. But given that <laughs> people didn't want to walk out of their house and have to put on a mask, all that stuff. Instead, they went online and they started fooling around with these relatively low priced stocks where they could have a little bit of fun for a relatively small amount of money. And I'm not so puritanical that I'm going to sit here and say, no, you should not have any fun on Wall Street. If you want to take a couple percent of your portfolio and play around with GameStop or AMC or cryptocurrencies or any of this other nonsense, fine, have at it. It's probably no more expensive than it is you know, becoming addicted to golf, and it may actually turn out to be more fun. The problem arises when this fun money becomes your entire portfolio and people start betting everything on cryptocurrencies or GameStop or AMC. That's when we get in trouble. So if you can confine it to some small part of your portfolio, if you can think of it as a lottery ticket, great. 
if you start to play with all your money with this stuff and you actually think you know what you're doing and you actually think you're going to beat the market and you actually think this is the road to riches, it's probably time for therapy. <laughs> you know, someone who talks about his therapy a lot is NYU professor Scott Galloway. I'm sure you've read about him. He's been uh, very worried about these trends such as Robin Hood. He says it's capitalizing on the addictive nature of day trading and uh, cryptocurrencies and everything else. And that uh, people, especially who are uh, in lockdown at home and with the Fed just keeping its thumb on the scale of interest rates to keep volatility out of the equation, Assets have not been marked down. Real estate is swelled. Stocks are expensive. So he's worried that people are out there making exciting opportunities for themselves that others will interpret as core investments, and there's going to be a lot of heartbreak. I think that there could be a lot of heartache. I do fear that the gamifying of investing could create problems. But the fact is, you know, gambling has always been with us. And most of the time, you know, people gamble and it's just fine. For some small, unfortunate group, it becomes a problem. But that's also the same with drinking. You know, some people abuse drinking. Other people can have a, you know, a glass of wine or two and everything's fine. So, yeah, you know, to the extent that temptation is available, somebody's going to end up getting hurt. But my hope and expectations is that for most people, you know, this will just be you know, an unfortunate way to have a little bit of fun, not on a Friday night, but maybe on a Tuesday afternoon. <laughs> but coming With back some to, wine coolers. Yes. But coming back to your uh your assumption there about how overvalued everything is, I think people should be a little careful before they assume that everything is overvalued. I mean, for instance, if we go back and we look at real estate prices, I mean real estate prices today are barely higher than they were at the market peak 15 years ago. You know, we have not seen a huge dramatic surge in real estate prices such that people should be talking about a bubble, though many are. I mean, if you've had an asset that's gone virtually nowhere for 15 years, the odds are it's probably not unreasonable. And indeed, if you go to the National Association of Realtors, you know, they have their housing affordability index, and it has indeed deteriorated this year, but it's still substantially better than it was, say, at the beginning of the 1990s, and still substantially better than it was in the mid 2000s. And, and part of that is because interest rates are so much lower, but part of it also because, you know, family income has gone up. Houses are more affordable for most people. Meanwhile, if you look at the stock market, if the stock market ended today where it currently is, and if analysts are right about forecasted earnings, we're going to end 2021 with the SP 500 about 24, 25 times reported earnings. And that is right around the average for the past 30 years. So, yeah, things seem a little out of control right now. And partly, you know, that is because interest rates are so low, but objectively, it's not that wild out there. I, for one, as somebody on the cusp of retirement with a stock-heavy portfolio, I mean, if I was really, really worried, you know, I would, uh, I would be moving substantial money out of stocks and into bonds. But as things stand, you know, I'm happy to sit with a stock-heavy portfolio. I don't think things are that out of control here. But what about real estate? You did mention it. My impression is that it's out of the realm of affordability for so many people. You read about millennials who have only been repairing their balance sheets recently, and now homes are just 
I mean, you, you, you've seen numbers on, on record few days on the market and they're getting snapped up. There, there's a, this impending crisis of just too low a housing stock of replacement generationally. Uh, Robin, I can only point you to the numbers. If you look at the numbers, housing today is 50% more affordable for the typical family than it was 30 years ago. It's 50% more affordable than it was 15 years ago at the peak of the real estate bubble. Yeah, you know, when asset classes start to move, you know, we do tend to see momentum. We do tend to see prices move at a pretty rapid clip, but it doesn't mean that things are out of control. It just means that people are waking up to the opportunity and taking advantage of it. Seriously, I would not counsel anybody not to buy a home at this point based on today's prices. I would only counsel them not to own it based on their own circumstances. I mean, if you buy a home, you really need to be planning on staying put for at least seven years so that you can make up for the transaction costs involved in buying and selling a home. You need to be reasonably confident that your employment is secure, that your paycheck is not going to go away so that you can afford those mortgage payments. But yeah, for most people, if they have that seven-year time horizon, if they have a reasonably stable job, I think buying a home at this juncture is not a terrible thing to do by any stretch of the imagination. Full disclosure, I'm Robin Farzad. You're listening to Jonathan Clements, founder and editor of Humble Dollar. He spent almost 20 years at the venerable Wall Street Journal, where he was the newspaper's personal finance columnist. Jonathan, what about this rustiness that people have in returning back to the office? Maybe they're thinking twice. There's been a lot of ink spilled about satellite cities and smaller cities, and people, for example, decamping from Manhattan and going up to Cold Springs Harbor or moving up to Connecticut or moving down to the Mid-Atlantic that you can give yourself, you can manufacture a raise, assuming your company is on board with it, in getting out of one of these high rent markets and going into a smaller, cheaper market and maybe plow the, the savings into something else. And what I would say is, if you can do it, that's great, but be absolutely sure that your employer is indeed on board with it. I have been hearing about people who moved an hour and a half out of Manhattan to get the big house with the big yard so they could raise their kids in what they feel is a safe environment. And then suddenly their employer wants them back at the office and they're looking at this horrendous commute, you know, three hours on the train and in the car every day. Uh, one of my favorite topics is, is that of money and happiness. And we know that the killer of happiness, the number one killer of happiness is commuting. So oh. before you move out of the city and far away from wherever your company is based, make sure they're not going to call you back because otherwise you have indeed made a mistake. And it's not the mistake that you bought a house that's going to go down in price. The mistake you made is you bought a house and then you have to both buy and sell in relatively short order and incur all those transaction costs. And that is a situation where people end up losing money in real estate. You know, Jonathan, recently I met a uh a young woman who was telling me about her enthusiasm for going to the Goodwill right next to you know where I live, near the University of Richmond, right as classes end at the end of the year, because you get many of these privileged students who are just looking to offload furniture, Patagonia jackets, lightly used lamps, electronics, and everything, and you can be in hog heaven as a, a frugal person, as a, you know someone who likes uh, secondhand stores and salvaging. And it brought to mind what you guys have written about at Humble Dollar is this financial independence retire early movement. 
that there is actually a subset of people out there that believes in, you know, unlike the stereotype of the free spending 20 something, actually save, hinder your 20s and 30s and maybe your 40s so you can live easily. You don't have to be working for the man in your late 40s. What do you make of that? I certainly think it's better than the alternative, which is spending like crazy through your 20s and 30s and getting to your 40s or even your 50s and going, oh my, retirement is on the horizon and I haven't got a penny in the 401k. I don't know how I'm going to possibly afford to ever quit the workforce. So yeah, I think the financial independence retire early movement is is great in that regard. Anything that gets people to save early and often, especially through their 20s and 30s, we should be applauding that. The question in my mind and in the mind of many people who look at the FIRE movement is, are these folks saving enough? Are they quitting the workforce too early? You know, have they seriously thought about, you know, what they're going to do for the final 40 or 50 years of their life? We all need to lead lives that are fulfilling. We need to have a reason to get out of bed every morning. And if you think that the key to happiness is to save like crazy so that you know, at age 35, you can quit the workforce and sit on the beach for the rest of your life, you're setting yourself up for misery. What you should be doing is saving prodigious amounts through your 20s and 30s, and then thinking about how you're going to constructively use the financial freedom that you're buying yourself. And you might mean opting for a second career where you do something that's perhaps less remunerative, but which you would find more fulfilling. It might mean scaling back to part-time in your current job so that you have more time for hobbies that you enjoy. I think as we think about retirement, whether it's early retirement or later retirement, we have to think not only about the financial side, but also what we're going to do with all that free time. Because if you quit the workforce at any age and your aspiration is to sit on the couch, eat cheese doodles and watch Netflix, you know, you are going to be wretched. So for the people in the fire movement and for every other person who hopes one day to retire, yes, think about the financial side, but also think what you're going to do with that time. Where does your mind go when maybe you're flipping through the channels and somebody's asking Susie Orman, uh, you know, on the one hand, it's about consolidating credit card debt. And on the other hand, you see these scolds telling you to forego that $4 Starbucks latte frappe i mean put that money away or the way the way millennials are told to not eat avocado toast and save for retirement instead is it that binary it's not at all that binary robin and by the way i uh <laughs> i don't i don't have a cable package so i don't flip through the channels unfortunately oh. i rarely see Susie Orman. <laughs> but yes it is not that binary i think the important thing here is to make sure that you spend your money on things that you really care about. A $4, $5 frappuccino, whatever, is not going to be the end of your financial future. But it's not a wise purchase if there's other things that you would rather spend that money on. Psychologists talk about this word. I, I, I love it. It's miswanting. We miswant. We are very bad at predicting what will make us happy. And if you don't believe me, think about why it is that when we build houses, we include basements. Basements are museums where we store the stuff that we thought was going to make us endlessly happy, but we can't yet bring ourselves to trash. We spend over our lifetimes hundreds of thousands of dollars on things that end up delivering little or no happiness, and often we end up regretting. So the key is not to say, oh, 
never get a coffee from Starbucks. The key is to think hard about what you want from your money and make sure that you use your money for the things that are going to deliver the greatest happiness. And the only way you're going to know that is by ignoring your instincts and thinking carefully about how you spend your money. It means pausing. So if you're in the store and you're overwhelmed by the desire to buy a pair of shoes that's going to cost you $200, my advice, walk out of the store for 10 minutes and think hard about whether that's really what you want or whether there's something else that you'd rather spend that money on or whether you'd rather put it in the bank and spend it tomorrow instead. Ditto for everything else in your life. If you want to remodel the kitchen, don't make a snap decision to do so just because you're trying to keep up with your neighbors who spent $100,000 remodeling the kitchen. Instead, think about it for many months and make sure that this is indeed how you want to spend your hard-earned money. You know, Jonathan, in the few minutes we have left with you, I'd like to turn it around and ask you about kind of your journey. You came to the Wall Street Journal more than 30 years ago. It was in January 1990. I see the stipple, the trademark photo they have of you. You were a cub reporter. You were a greenhorn at age 31. And and I read now that you are a grandfather, correct? That is correct. What would you say to that 30-year-old in the picture? What else could you say that you've learned along the way? Uh, Were there certain neuroses or worries or a a crystal ball that you didn't have back then that if you could talk to 30-year-old you, and by extension, all the people out there who are in the the, kind of the the sunrise of their careers? What I would say to my 30-year-old self is, for goodness sake, don't worry so much about money. Don't worry so much about whether things are going to work out. Because for most of us, most of the time, Things do work out. You know, we bumble through. When I go back to my 20s and my 30s, it's clear in retrospect that I spent way too much time worrying about money. Uh, Robin, I was a father at a very young age. I was a father at age 25. By the time I was wow. 29, I had two kids. I, at the time, I had a wife who was a graduate student. You know, and I was trying to support this family on a cup reporter's salary. And money was extremely tight. And despite that, I did everything I could to save money, to think about the future. And today I, I reap the reward of that frugality. But in retrospect, I wish I'd cut myself a little bit of slack and said, hey, you know, it's going to work out. You know, if you save a little bit less this month, it's going to be okay. You know, if you go out to dinner, maybe you shouldn't worry quite so much about how big the bill is going to be. Now, admittedly, I'm on the frugality side of the spectrum. And in that regard, I'm in a minority. I think maybe more people need to think you know, harder about how they spend their money and whether they're spending too much. But in my case, it was probably that I was spending too little and worrying too much about the future. And I wish that perhaps looking back that that wasn't the case. I mean, it used to be a profitable, profitable industry with high profit margins and the high teens and everything. And similarly, you know, I started... I started at Mother Dow, Dow Jones, the same parent company in, in 2000, and I had no idea of the, the wreckage and everything that would happen. It just became post-apocalyptic in journalism, even for a veteran personal financial journalist. But you were able to transmogrify and, and transition, and you were at City Personal Wealth Management for a stint. You came back. You, you did something entrepreneurial now with Humble Dollar. So I'll tell you a great story, Robin, about which highlights what's happened to the world of journalism. Uh, my father was also a financial journalist for the first 10 years of his career. Like me, my father graduated from Cambridge University, 
like me, my father went into journalism. When he graduated from Cambridge, he had a first in economics, the best degree you could uh -huh. get. And so he essentially had his pick of jobs and he wasn't sure what he wanted to do. So he decided he was going to take the highest paying job he was offered. The second highest paying job he was offered was as a management trainee for Royal Dutch Shell, then the quintessential multinational. But the highest paying job he was offered at 800 pounds a year was as a reporter for the Financial Times. Get out. So can you imagine somebody graduating from college today and taking the highest paying job they were offered and that job was in journalism? It's unthinkable. I mean, today I look around and the only people who seem to be able to afford to be journalists are people who are trust fund babies, who aren't at all concerned about money. I mean, it's, to my mind, almost impossible to have a full career in journalism. Yeah, you might be able to do it for the first 10 years of your life, and then you've got to go off and find a, a real job and make some money. But Humble Dollar is not a, a hobby for you and some of the contributors, right? It's a business. It is, Robin, to be honest, more of a hobby. I mean, it's my semi-retirement job. It's my way of giving back. Uh, you can make money in the blogging world, but to do that, you have to do various things that I consider to be an anathema. You have to run sponsored blog posts. You have to sure. insert sponsored links. You have to have these affiliate marketing relationships where if people click through from your site to a business and open an account, then you get a kickback. And, you know, after all the years in journalism, and particularly at the Wall Street Journal, where they tried as hard as possible to be as ethical as possible, I simply can't bring myself to do that stuff. So, you know, I run the site based on advertising, which I do not consider to be unethical, and I run it based on donations. But between those two, you know, let's put it this way. If I really wanted to make money, I'd be better off flipping burgers at McDonald's. Oh, well, you know, I know the, the gratification of coming on Full Disclosure, which surely is the apotheosis of your career, sir. Uh, <laughs> thank you so much, Jonathan Clements. I've always been a big fan of your byline, and I'm, I'm so excited that you finally came on this show. You are welcome back anytime. Well, thank you so much, Robin. It's been great talking to you. Jonathan Clements, founder and editor of Humble Dollar. Full disclosure, special thanks to our producer, Claire Morgan at Notterly. This show podcast to NPR One, Spotify, an Apple podcast at linkfulldradio.com. Please subscribe, follow, and recommend us. We are on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram at Full D Radio. A hello to our radio listeners up in Arlington, Virginia, and Washington, D.C., down in Asheville, North Carolina, Ventura, California. Holler if you too would like us on your air. I'm Robin Farzad. Thank you so much for listening and back with you next week. <laughs>